G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode was super important to me. I wanted to kick off the next 50 with an absolute bang. So I have the one, the only, the ever bubbly, the forever busy Karen Jacobs. Well, how OT found me is a little bit of a, a narrative story. Um, I always thought I would be a physician, and then I thought maybe that wouldn't be a good match for me. So in undergraduate school, um, I took a lot of science classes and then switched to psychology. Um, and at the last minute, um, almost in school, um, I got my preschool primary education degree. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll be a teacher. You know, that sounds like a, um, a good career. Um, the reason that um, becoming a physician didn't make sense for me, um, I was married. Um, and um, it, it just, you know, in undergrad, I got married as a junior. Hard to believe getting married at 20. Um, and my, um, my husband at the time was getting his PhD. And it just... It just didn't look like a good experience. And he had thought about getting the MD and decided not to. So I think work-life balance made me go into that one direction. Well, you'll say, how, you know, how did OT find me? Well, at the same time of being in school, um, I had a leather and ceramic business, mostly leather. And I lived in St. Louis and um, was at an art fair. And I set up my leather exhibit next to this potter and I'm talkative as you can tell <laughs> and I walked over to her and I introduced myself and she was studying an anatomy book and I the first thing I said to her you know after I introduced myself is what you're a potter what are you looking at an anatomy book and she said well um I'm becoming an occupational therapist and of course I said what is it and she <laughs> the said age-old hey. question yeah and um and, and, um, and she said, you know, after the show, I need to continue dissecting my cadaver. Um, would you like to come with me? And I said, of course, you know, I'd love to, you know, we sort of became instantaneous friends. Um, and from just talking to her, I saw how all the pieces of my interests came together. So this is 1971. Um, I, I saw that my interest in science, my interest in working with people, my interest in arts and crafts, um, all came together with occupational therapy. And um, I thought about it for a little bit and decided uh, when we moved from St. Louis uh, to Boston that I would take the prerequisite classes um, and see if I could get into occupational therapy school. Interestingly enough, and, and very different from what occupational therapy is now for applying to school, I applied to one school. I applied to Boston University <laughs> and got accepted in 1976. So there were a few years in between that. And um, in those years between, I became a mom too um, and uh, applied and got accepted and started occupational therapy school, um, entry level masters in 19. Uh, 77. Wow. So that was that a two-year course? Yeah, yeah. so it's, it was two years of academic work and then um, 
I took did two um, field work experiences. Nice. Did you think? Because this is something that I've thought about for myself. Because I didn't necessarily come from a very sort of arty, creative type background. Before I went into OT, I was very, I was a boy. I was very, you know, building things and very logical and structured and everything. And I've kind of reflected a few times about how that impacted the OT that I became, I guess. Do you think that the your sort of previous uh, experience with being arty and creative and that had an impact on sort of where you went with the profession or how you used the profession when you when you finished? Yeah, so um, I, I always say to students, you know, creativity is really important. And I absolutely think that um, I think differently. Um, I'm always thinking about how I can infuse art into my um, courses that I teach, um, which is which is different yeah. <laughs> than most um, people teaching in occupational therapy. So I do think that that background um, in arts and crafts and my love for art um, has really um, helped make you know, creativity, part of who I am. Yeah. Yeah, because I've seen, like, other, like, I've spoken to, even on here, I've spoken to a few OTs that, you know, they did their, uh, like, their bachelor's was, you know, I think someone was in, like, fine art and someone else was in dance and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I wonder how, if I had sort of some sort of creative experience prior to studying OT, how that would have changed I guess, how I think or how I, I get turned out. <laughs> I think it turned out pretty well. I'd go all right. I got, <laughs> but I, I think like the difference is like, I find, I found my creativity after, like since mm-hmm. after doing OT, I sort of, but my creativity is more like this tech type stuff. And this is, well, but know, that's, you know, that's another, yeah, that's, you know, that's another um, way of being creative and being innovative and, and I like to think that I try to be innovative as well. Um, and I think it comes from, but I think it's different. You know, I don't, I think um, you can become creative. You can become innovative. I think it's just looking at opportunities um, and creating opportunities um, and, and, and trying to have this sort of intentional um, spirit about you. And um, this, oh, I think, joyful way of looking at your career and your life um, that, you know, you can participate, you can be an agent of change and you can do it in a creative, innovative way. Um, And it's fun. It is. It can be definitely. And I I think it's even more fun if you're able to incorporate that into your work, as opposed to using it as kind of an outlet from work or around work. Totally right. Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, I'm teaching an introductory course, Analysis and Adaptation of Occupation. And we were in our second week of the course. And I was teaching them the AOT practice framework, the language that we use and the occupations and, you know, that work may be interpreted differently by people and play and leisure and all of that. So she came up to me in class and she said, I think that you don't consider your work work. I think <laughs> consider it play. <laughs> and I said, you know, I love what I do and loving what I do and having the opportunity 
to explore and be creative and, and bring my students along on projects that help build their creativity. That work for me really in many, many days is my play. It's so meaningful to me. And that's the old adage, what is it? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so where did you find yourself after you graduated? Where, what, what sort of area did you work in? Where did you go? Well, interesting enough, uh, you know, life has its twists and, and turns. And when I applied to occupational therapy school, I was married. And when I started it, I was a single mom. And so um, I had a five-year-old daughter named Layla. And I would have to take her to school with me because, you know, sometimes the babysitter didn't work out. Um, she was, you know, I remember her being tested with the motor accuracy test over and over again. She named it the dog bone test. All of my classmates <laughs> used her as their, you know, the, the, the person they got to practice testing any kind of, you know, pediatric or young, young child. Um, um, so it took a turn where I had to think about being a parent and a single parent. So when I um, was looking for jobs, you know, I, I wanted to go into mental health. When I did the mental health um, level two field work, I wanted to go into cardiac rehab when I did my second one. Um, but I realized that to be a mom, um, I would do better if I was in a school calendar job. And so um, I uh, applied and, and got a job at a school called the Little People School. And it was um, for young children up to the age 14 with learning disabilities and, and some hearing uh, challenges as well. Not too far uh, a commute for me. Um, and so I, I entered into working in a private school. And I thought I was just going to have a job. Yep. And lo and behold, maybe mm, four months into the job at Little People's School, um, it became apparent that some of the things I was doing um, might broaden you know, what the school was thinking about doing, their vision. And so I was a pre-vocational occupational therapist. I was helping these teenagers up to 14 years old develop pre-vocational skills so that eventually they develop skills so that they could become Get into the workforce. Yeah. So at the same time, the school made a decision to expand uh, to turning 22. And they asked me to uh, develop the vocational high school. And so keeping the LPS initials, the high school part became the learning prep school. And interestingly enough, um, you know, I really didn't know anything. Um, about creating vocational programs and hiring people and still, you know, being in charge of being an OT and eventually being in charge of the OT department. But what I found is, again, that creativity and, and opening up to opportunity. So I took some of the things I was doing in pre-vocational OT and made them into vocational shops. Like I was teaching the students, um, cooking skills. And so we, we started a food service program that eventually became um, making lunches um, for students. Um, we had, um, I had OT, my office where I worked was in a basement, not uncommon at the time in the 70s. And I wanted to do gardening. So I had um, three 
four foot grow lights in the basement and we were planting in seeds. And so that ended up becoming a horticulture center. And um, we were able to get a grant to build a real greenhouse, which is still on the property now. And then they just kept evolving, you know, um, bicycle maintenance became a shop, carpentry became a shop. um, And the school is still flourishing today. Um, And so what ended up happening there was very interesting. And I can't tell you how um, it came about, but um, in 19, I think it was 1982 or so, I got asked to write a book about, um, about work, pre-vocational and vocational. And a lot of the book was about um, the learning prep school and what OT could do. I started, I developed a standard assessment to use. It was remarkable. My career took off. Right from, it, it took right off. from day one. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, right time, right place. Um, and unexpected because truly um, being a mom was extremely important to me. Um, and I wanted to be there for my, for my daughter. Um, and work balance, all of that, um, you know, went out the door in some ways, although in that environment, I was able to leave it at home. But in 1983, I got asked to teach a course at Boston University on, um, on work. And that introduced me to this environment, the academic environment. And I've been at BU teaching and then full time um, now for years. So I've been at BU since 1983. So how long were you at the school? Um, I was at the school um, for almost eight years. And that was, because that's, that's quite rare well, nowadays. Anyway, that's quite rare to stay in like essentially like your first job for that long. It is. And then if you look at Boston University and do the math, I've been at BU for 36 years and, and there was an over, overlap. I'm the kind of person that when you plant, she plants her yeah. roots. <laughs> likes to to stay you moved in Um, day one (laughs) yeah yeah i like well career wise but but the thing that i think is important even though it sounds like wow she went from one job to the next and that's that's it um the opportunities have been remarkable and i have to say i have i've had an amazing career and i've got many more years ahead of me and i think you know my career has evolved and um i like where it's evolved too as well and never realized it would evolve to where it is so i remember when we first met a lot of the information that i had seen about you or had read about you was around backpacks yeah still going strong how did that come about obviously i'm assuming through the school or or is it something different that came as a money so um I had one daughter, Layla, who I mentioned, and I haven't mentioned to you that she became an occupational therapist. <laughs> it's in the blood. And yesterday was her birthday. Um, so she's been OT for a while. Um, so um, I ended up remarrying and had two more kids, uh, Josh and Ariel. And I remember one day, because I remember this distinctly, it was 1997 going on to 1998, they decided they didn't want to go on the school bus. They were both in junior high and they didn't want to go on the school bus. And they said, mom, drive us to school. So they get in the car and we go by their bus stop 
and I stopped there and I just looked at the window before I made a turn and the kids were all fooling around with each other. And one kid in particular had a heavy backpack and another kid poked him. I don't think he was being a bully. They were just fooling around. And the backpack was so heavy that the student um, lost his balance, fell backward. He looked like a turtle, you know, his arms, his legs, you know, and I turned around to my two kids in the back seats and I said, how heavy is your backpack? And I remember this distinctly because I was looking in the rearview mirror. My son did a loser sign on his forehead to me. I didn't know what that meant. You know, the L for um, And I get this, Mom, you know, our backpacks are so heavy. And then my daughter was, my backpack's so heavy. And I've got, I've got um, a saxophone on the other side and, that, you know, carrying it. And I made a phone call. I dropped them off at school, made a phone call to the American Occupational Therapy Association. I had a little bit of social capital because I was vice president and president-elect at that time. And I said to the executive director, I think there's an issue with backpacks and um, we're the right people to address it because we're in um, all the school districts in the United States under a federal law. And I remember her saying, we have so many other things that we're involved in. If you want to take this on on your own, do it. And I'm very stubborn about that. <laughs> so I hung up the phone and I was like, um, and I made a phone call. Um, I made a phone call. I thought about um, one of the largest backpack companies in the New England area, because I lived in Boston at the time. And um, I called up L.L. Bean which is one of the largest uh, companies in the United States. Um, they're up in Maine. And I asked to speak to the president. <laughs> and they said, well, the president doesn't take calls. Um, and I said, well, I'm, you know, I want to talk about backpacks. Um, and so they put me through to the PR department there. And um, I spoke to a very nice man. And I said, you know, I represent uh, 50,000 occupational therapy practitioners and students. We see that backpacks are an issue. I'd like to talk to you about that. And I remember him saying to me, um, this is really important, but I have something right now that's taking my focus um, that I need to focus on. But if you call me back in six months, I'll set up a meeting for us. Um, and he was very sincere. And that six months allowed me to start looking at the evidence literature to see if there was any any issues related to backpacks. And there wasn't a lot of evidence at the time. There was um, articles published more about people being in the military and carrying rucksacks and things like that. So six months later, I made my phone call. I said, hi. And he said, okay, let's schedule a time for you to come up and meet my, with my team. So I go up to Freeport, Maine. And I remember this. I tell this story all the time. I remember coming in and sitting at an oval table and I sat next to the PR person and there were about, I think, four other people at the table. And before I began, there was one other woman, the woman across from me, I could tell she didn't like me. There was something, you know, in her I don't know, body language. And she points at me and very intimidating and says, why should we go with you? Why should we go with occupational therapy? We've been contacted by pediatricians. We've been contacted by um, chiropractors, lots of other about organizations. About the same issues. Yeah, about the same issues. This is 19 now. It's 1998. Um, why should we go with you? And before I could open my mouth, the guy to my right said, I know. This is an LLB worker. I know. 
he said, occupational therapy practitioners, using the right language, um, work with children in schools. They understand child development. They would be um, there to meet with parents and teachers and students right away. Um, they're the right the profession to go with. And I remember my head swinging towards him and I said, how, how do you know about this? And he said, I dated an occupational therapist. <laughs> it was amazing. So the woman across shaking her head and she said, yeah, now I understand. Um, that became our first initiative. Before I left, we had made an agreement for L.O. Bean to print um, a trifold brochure that we would develop the content, um, but they would have a graphic artist draw everything out. The AOT logo was on a, on a defining OT, um, hang tags for all their backpacks, a news video release. They paid for everything. They shrink-wrapped the trifold um, brochure in their mailing of catalog to every single person um, in their... And so we kicked off backpack awareness with LLB. Uh, it was amazing, amazing partnership. But as an organization, we decided that we would, didn't want to be associated with a backpack company. We wanted to stay independent. So um, we decided to launch National School Backpack Awareness Day, which is the third Wednesday in September. So it's going to be pretty next, soon. Next week. Uh, yeah. And it's been going strong for almost a decade. And we, we have uh, initiatives all over the United States, uh, weighing backpacks, talking to parents. Um, I have three events that my students and myself will be doing. Um, and I think the exciting part is it, it started as a parent. Yeah. Um, and it started seeing that there was an issue. And I think as occupational therapists, we're agents of change. We see challenges. Um, what's very exciting about the National School Backpack Awareness Initiative is that it's the longest running public health initiative in occupational therapy in the world. Um, it's about 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, and um, we became population based um, at that time period. So I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I'll bet. So you're still involved in the organization of it? Yeah, so I'm the national spokesperson for it. And when I travel to different countries, um, I try to, to spread the word about this. And so I was on a Fulbright in um, Iceland um, in, I think it was 2004. And I went to Iceland to teach on the Fulbright and I introduced backpack awareness there. And I'm happy to say that they are still going strong with that um, in Iceland. And it's a long time, almost 14 years. Yeah. So what sort of like injuries or issues were you seeing caused by backpacks? Well, what we're seeing with backpacks is discomfort um, and that can lead to pain. And I think the, the biggest issue for us is education. So if a child said, oh, I've got red marks here, my back hurts, I've got a headache, you know, my backpack's too heavy. Um, we have strategies that we can share, very easy messaging, um, pack it light, wear it right, select the right backpack, pack it correctly and wear it correctly. So it's not as much, we're not seeing injuries as occupational therapists. Yep. We're seeing discomfort and pain. Yep. And by making really easy changes, 
we're seeing a difference. Has there been, because I think one of the things in when I was, when I first was reading a lot of the stuff, when I, well, way back in the day when I first sort of got to know you, I was kind of reflecting on my school and I didn't ever have a lot in my backpack because we had lockers and everything stayed at school pretty much. Is Has there been any sort of changes from a, a, a school perspective with regards to that as opposed to the student having to take it all on you know with their backpack kind of thing have you seen any well it it depends on the the age and it depends on the school Mm -hmm. and i think um through the national school backpack awareness day that aota has been um promoting we're seeing schools teachers parents uh, i think implementing some of the things that we've set shared we also are seeing changes because we're seeing schools not necessarily having textbooks mm. as the kids get older. They have uh, tablets, <laughs> yeah, laptops, and they can be heavy too. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, so you have to be careful with that. But we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a shift. Those big science books that we might have seen in, uh, in junior high or high school are getting, in some some cases, uh, replaced by digital digital books um, so they can look at them at home. Um, you know, some schools uh, have lockers. Some schools have decided not to have lock- mm-hmm. lockers. So everyone is is individual, um, I think, on how they're approaching, um, you know, making the tools and equipment that the students use on a daily basis yeah, yep. easier for them to be able to um, access and use. And was this, you mentioned that you'd uh, done some research around this. Was this part of getting your PhD or was that something different? No, it wasn't. Um, This was just, I was passionate about this. My doctoral work was on a topic totally different. I studied um, flow uh, that Csikszentmihalyi um, uh, writes about. I studied flow in um, occupational therapy practitioners and the early 1990s so totally different um couldn't have thought of a more different topic i don't think <laughs> yeah oh it was so it was so interesting and you know it predates um i used the experiential sampling methodology which you might be um familiar with where you um beep or page somebody to respond to to, to something mm-hmm. and i remember the technology there were no ipads there were no you know um phones like we have now so i had to take a casio watch and program casio watches to beat people and the study went um, for each person for a week and they were beat seven times a day when they were working so you can imagine data points and i look back on this and it's like what was you know maybe it was my introduction to loving um or loving technology or or seeing the value in technology yeah um and it, it's just interesting to reflect on it. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Yeah, and like something like that nowadays, you could, you know, everyone's got a smartphone. You can pretty much set up an app to do that and collect all your data remotely nowadays. <laughs> it's yeah, a very yeah. Different world. And actually, we did we did a study with university students and using um, uh, their notebook computers and tablets that way a few years ago, and it was much much easier. And it was even easier because I had a research assistant. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Someone else to help. 
help me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of the biggest because I've recently in the last couple of years sort of gone into that academia route. And I think that was one of the biggest differences when I first started was the first thing every student does when they get in the classroom is open up a computer. I'm like, when I went to yes. uni, I don't think anyone had a laptop. I mean, most no. most people had a desktop, but obviously you can't carry that to class. But I don't, I can't remember anyone. It was, you know, you had to print your notes and you had to take them with you and you had a notebook and, you know, you had to either write on the notes or write in your notebook and no one had a, a laptop that they brought to class. Well, I'm going to even date myself more. My first book that I wrote, which I mentioned to you, I used, uh, I typed on a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> that's really bad um but you know you get it done um and then when i was doing my doctoral work um we were just starting to have i think we had the first mac that was out nice um it was yeah so you know technology certainly has evolved you know my iphone is you know now my brain my computer yeah. it's everything it's remarkable yep i um, hear that and now i have my little macbook pro that i cut everywhere with me like my life and i don't know what i'd do without it i'd be lost yeah, yeah we've become very we become um very comfortable with technology and uh, in particular as my career has evolved i have become more involved with technology and actually i'm going to share something that's really exciting and it happened yesterday okay uh, the dean of my college um sergeant college at bu um, appointed me as the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And I'm so excited. Yeah. Like, I have, like, these big, gigantic ideas. And now <laughs> I've got to, you know, look at what's realistic to do. But the excitement for me is that I've been um, the program director for the online post-professional doctorate in occupational therapy. And we've had some people from Australia and all around the world. Um, and I want to do a plug for that. Yeah, if anybody wants to their doctorate um, in occupational therapy, come to BU. And our focus is peer-to-peer -peer mentoring and faculty mentoring, which has been great. And people can do their doctoral project on any topic they want. But being involved in online education and how it's evolved and the technology has evolved, like right now we're on Zoom working with each other. Um, I remember the first online course I taught in physical therapy because I started teaching um, physical therapists online when I was getting involved in that. I had to type, chat. I remember my fingers. <laughs> I would get off and I was like, I'm never doing this again. I can't handle this. There must be an easier way. <laughs> oh, my God. But we didn't, have, we didn't have this technology. And the technology, day-to-day -day technology is so robust that right now you know we're talking with each other we happen to have the the um video on you know it's like we're in the same space yeah and i won't catch a cold yes that's right there's a there's a very handy barrier in between right even though we um, and it's, <laughs> feel and so it's, close it's so <laughs> but it's wonderful so when i when i teach and um and i teach in our post-professional uh, otd program um it's like the brady bunch all the faces are up and you know, we're all looking at each other, we're pointing at each other. And I think the reason I love it so much is that um, we can reach people all around the world. Yeah, uh, we, have awesome. somebody, we have somebody from Botswana. We have oh, somebody wow. from... Yeah, 
you know, United Arab Emirates, Cyprus, um, uh, Israel, people are from all over. And so it's making occupational therapy um, grow yeah. or make occupational therapy practitioners grow as global citizens where we wouldn't have had that opportunity. And, and we didn't have that opportunity. And we don't even carry backpacks. We- <laughs> <laughs> Just lay it out in front of you. Here. Yeah. <laughs> is because my geography is not the greatest. Is Boston kind of an area that is very, I guess, multicultural or is it people that specifically coming in to do this course? No, um, Boston itself um, is multicultural. Um, I think what's attracting many people is this is an online post-professional doctorate. So everybody is an occupational therapist already. Um, On campus, we don't have um, a program like that. So I think what attracts people um, is that they don't have to move. Um, that's, that's one reason, particularly if, you know, if they're on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and they want self-actualization, is that great? But there's many people who need their doctorate to, to teach. Um, and, um, and so I think it's filling a really important, um, gap that exists. The other thing that I think is really wonderful for this program in particular is that we have, um, our Dean's support. That's who's in charge of our college. And he has kindly given very, very deep merit scholarships, uh, opportunities for every single student coming into our program. And so it's not only um, a program that you don't have to move, but it's at a very reasonable cost. I don't know of any other online program that um, is as reasonable. Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's great. It opens it up to, yeah, like you said, you know, People from countries that you know, might not be as affluent as you know we are in right. Western, the Western world. Yes, and you know that's that's really our mission. Um, we want to grow global citizens. We want to plant seeds and mentor our students um, so that they can go back to their communities and grow occupational therapy. Um, and when I was talking about how my career has evolved, um, even though I have this lovely new appointment, which I'm you know, so excited about. Um, it's on top of everything I'm doing. It's not like <laughs> I gave up anything. It's an additional, <laughs> um, yeah. Additional, and, but, but it's okay. Um, I love mentoring. And as I look at my career and where it's going, it's it's um, spending time mentoring the next generation of, of um, occupational therapists and, and occupational therapy practitioners. Very important to me. Yeah, that's awesome. So on the technology thing, wind it back a little bit the like the the reason that me and you originally met was through ot for ot uh yes. which is online technology and i've had uh, anita's been on on the, the podcast before how did how did you get involved as one of the founding ladies of ot for ot how did you get involved into in that amazing little project well i listened to anita's um interview a podcast that you gave. It was fabulous. I love Anita. Well, this is a shout out. Anita, I love you. Um, <laughs> I love you too, forward Anita. To seeing you soon. <laughs> um, so this is just, again, opportunities. So I was at the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapy Conference um, in Canada. And um, I can't remember. I think I was there. They were giving me a merit, a award of merit. I think that's why I was there. Um, and so I was there and I went to sessions and I remember walking into a session 
that Anita was doing, and I might have been a little bit late, but I was blown away by what she was sharing about technology. Um, I loved the way she presents. And I walked up to her after and I said, we have to work together. <laughs> uh, we, we just have to work together. Um, we got to figure something out that we can we can do. And that's um, how she and I got together. And then she knew Susan and then um, Meryl Lee and then and Angela, Sarah. <laughs> right. And then we just all connected and, and we, that was the charm of technology. We started working together without being in the same physical space. Mm. And, you know, that didn't happen until years later. And the cool part, um, it happened, you know, at the WFOT Congress, um, we just became friends. Um, and not necessarily, um, you know, ever, ever, seeing each other, going out to dinner, things like that. Um, we became friends and, and started OT for OT. And what was the, exactly. what was the aim back, to, back at the start? What was the, the aim? Yeah. What did you to have help, for it? To help occupational therapy practitioners and students feel more comfortable with technology. It's definitely done that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, and with, your, with you participating, for sure, um, in making this, I think our vision was met. Mm. I think it, the vision definitely was met. Because, like we, or like you mentioned at the very start, it's there was also a, a yearly online conference that went along with the the Facebook group and the networking and all of that kind of stuff. That's since evolved, and it's kind of been uh, handed over to WFOT to take yes. that on now. So we're doing something a little bit different, and it's evolving. Uh, and so OT for OT. Um, we actually did something, I think, very exciting. Um, we were in Croatia, Susan and myself, and we actually did some live streaming, video streaming um, for OT, for OT, or tw tw we didn't call it 24VX because it wasn't 24 hours. It was short. It was about eight hours. But we realized that everybody was very busy, and it was hard to get people to keep continuing to do it. So what we um, are doing with WFOT, um, we're offering doing webinars for them. And um, we've held one um, already interviewing people. And it's something that um, I'm moderating whenever they want me to do that. Um, and um, it's evolved. I think, I think our purpose of 24VX was to get people comfortable and to also get information out um, that wasn't readily accessible. You yeah. know, many people can't go to a WFOT Congress that's in South Africa or to a conference that's in Croatia or Ireland or Australia. And so I feel like we, we got that out to people. And now because technology is evolving so beautifully all over the world, people are having more access to it. So I think, um, I think it, it reached its purpose, its mm. vision, and now other people can take over uh, in their own communities. Because I think it, one of the things that attracted me to it in the first place was I'd always been kind of of the mindset that, you know, knowledge shouldn't cost a fortune. Um, and I think a lot of, at that point in time anyway, a lot of, you know, courses run by here at OT Australia and that kind of stuff did cost a fortune. Uh, but you guys were getting like, 
some of the biggest names in OT to speak and people could log in from anywhere in the world and it didn't cost them anything. And uh, there was also recording. So if they missed a session, then they could go back and watch it at a later date. It was something that I'd never seen before and I don't think I've seen really since. But it was it, it was something that original. I think I went, my first one I attended was two thousand and must be two thousand eleven, which would have been the second one I think, maybe the first one. I'm not sure. Um, but I just stumbled across it randomly halfway through. Uh, I don't. I saw something on Facebook in some group and went, "Oh, I'll have a look." And then I, I, actually, when I opened it up, I'm fairly sure it was Michael Awama that was talking. I'm like, "Oh." okay, this is different. Uh, and yeah, and obviously since then, I, after that, I got involved. And Well, you got, yeah, and you, you have been uh, fabulous. You've made it happen. You know, if we didn't have your support, it would have been challenging because we did do 24 hours and around the world. And, um, and you know, just like you're recording now at 5 a.m. in the morning, you know, for us, um, I remember the first time we did it, um, I had, <laughs> I was in my office. I had lots of food because I was determined to stay up for the 24 hours and not leave. And it was really great because we needed each other. Um, we needed, you know, we had, you know, technology glitches, you know, the technology wasn't quite there yet either. Um, and so we, we were able to problem solve for each other. Um, it was great. And, you know, I think that some of that's still existing. So I can give you an example. I agree with you that um, we need to make sure that people are, are understanding it, the evidence literature, what's out there to share, to share our body of knowledge. So um, I started a few years ago uh, for the work journal, uh, a learn at work webinar series that's monthly and free. And I moderate that. Um, um, it's on a different platform than, than Zoom. The model that we did with OT for OT, I actually introduced into my college, and we called it Health Matters. And we live streamed um, for eight hours mm -hmm. um, uh, presentations by faculty uh, in our college. So OT, PT, nutrition, um, health sciences, uh, speech and hearing, uh, athletic training. So I think that model can be replicated anywhere now. Um, and so I think we planted the seed. And now I hope the seed is growing around the world. I have seen there's a, I think webinars themselves are becoming more and more popular. I Absolutely. Know, yeah, like, I know our professional association has really taken them up on terms of delivering courses and that kind of thing. Um, you mentioned the work journal, which is something else that just another thing that you've just happened to do. <laughs> How did yes. that come about? Well, it actually came about, it was kind of fun. Um, I want to say it was 1989. Um, I was, my name was starting to get associated with the construct of work because my book had come out. And I was starting to do presentations and doing a little bit of research. Um, and, um, an editor for um, OT and healthcare contacted me, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name at this point, and said, would you like to be the guest editor of a special issue of OT and healthcare on, on work? And um, 
I said, sure. And typically my response is a yes. If anybody asks me to do things, um, you know, and I don't wait usually very long to respond. I go, yeah, of course. I'd love that. It sounds really interesting. Um, And it was, I got hooked on um, reading people's papers and editing them and directing them on writing. In fact, I felt it was much easier to do that than to write myself. (laughs) I liked it. And this is before track changes was around. So, (laughs) So it made me step back and I started thinking about the construct of work and that there was no journal out there looking at constructive work, um, interprofessional, interdisciplinary, international. Um, and so I just sat down and um, I said, I'm going to start. I'm go- I really want to start a journal and I'm going to call it work. What a great Makes name. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm, and, 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 this, and this, the heading will be work, a journal of prevention, assessment, and rehabilitation because we want to prevent issues first. If we can't prevent them, let's assess them and then, you know, rehabilitation. So I wrote this all out. I even pictured the color of the cover and sketched out not a very good drawing of what it would be like. Um, I started telling some of my friends about it. um, And I said, you know, I want to do this. I'm going to pitch it to a publisher. Would you come on board? So I had people like Valerie Rice, um, Nancy McRae, um, probably don't know, Stover Snook, who's one of the world-renowned ergonomists, um, a bunch of people, you know, and it was beyond just OT. So I had all this written out. And then I happened to have a telephone conversation with Gary Kilhoffner. So this is now 1990, um, almost 1990, 1989, getting on to 1990. And I was saying to Gary, I just loved editing. So I sat down and I created a journal in my mind. And now I'm going to pitch it. He said, Karen, right time, right place. Um, I am a consultant for a startup publishing company called Andover Press, and they're looking for journals. He said, would you like me to introduce you? So you have to remember that Gary lives in Chicago and I live in Massachusetts. And guess where Andover Press was? I actually know the answer because I've read it. But (laughs) Next to me in Massachusetts. So he introduces us. I meet with them the next day and work started. And it started um, with Andover Press. Um, four times a year, we had an issue come out. Um, I did all everything. Um, and uh, the promotion, the, you know, getting everything double blind peer reviewed and da, 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 da. And then it got bought out. I think it got bought out first by Butterworth. Then it got bought out by Elsevier, you know, all the companies yeah. buying. And then finally, uh, the journal, I think we got up to six or eight times a year. Um, and it got bought out by a small company called iOS Press. And it was part of a whole bunch of journals that I think Elsevier was getting rid of. Mm-hmm. Good news was um, they put a gem with a lot of journals that weren't doing well. And so work has absolutely flourished mm. uh, being published by iOS Press in the Netherlands. They are incredibly supportive. Um, work comes out once a month, has an impact factor. Uh, international, it's very well received. Wow. Uh, it's endorsed by the International Ergonomic Association. 
Um, I had to hire somebody to work for me because I couldn't do all of the administrative work. So I have um, an administrative assistant who works for me. Um, and it's just growing. And in fact, in uh, 2020, it's going to celebrate its 30th anniversary. And it's unbelievable. Um, so we're going to unveil uh, a new website that iOS Press is putting up. It's going to have three different blogs on it. Um, in honor of our 30th anniversary, I picked one article from every year that we're making uh, free to read. Uh, and I'll share that uh, link with you. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's workjournal.org. Um, and um, it'll Easy be unveiled in October. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, amaz it's amazing how, you know, your career can go in lots of different directions. Um, mine, you know, maybe seems a little bit scattered, um, but they all seem to have a theme for me, you know, about work and ergonomics and technology. But in recent years, I did something very different. And I don't know if you know about that stuff. Possibly not. Um, about my children's books? Oh, I'd heard, I'd, I'd, someone had mentioned it to me, but I haven't heard much about it. Were you writing them? Yeah, and publishing. Myself, I'm the publisher too. Um, yeah, so um, it, that all started um, many years ago. I wrote a children's book and had it illustrated. And it's when I had a lot of social capital with one publishing company because they were publishing my textbooks. Mm -hmm. And I brought it to them. And, and I remember the guy saying to me, um, stay with textbooks. <laughs> clear, clear that that story, that children's story has a lot of meaning to you. But um, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and by the way, you know, you write a story, you don't come with the illustrations also. That's a no-no with children's literature. So I let that, you know, I let that go by. And then um, for many years, we're talking maybe 15 years, 20 years, whatever, um, I um, was given the uh, Eleanor Clark Slagle uh, lectureship. And so I had almost a year to come up with what I wanted to talk about. Most people thought I would talk about ergonomics. Because that, yep. you know, back all of that, that was what I was doing. And I decided that wasn't what I was going to do. That for me, um, what's been really meaningful is being able to promote occupational therapy so that people understand it. So um, one of the things um, I decided to do was to get that, get writing that children's book again and to use um, children's literature as a way of um, uh, depicting people with disabilities accurately and to um, have occupational therapy uh, infused in that narr in that, that narrative. Um, and so as part of my Slagle, I did just participatory action research and studied the uh, children's literature and um, recruited somebody in Canada to co-write the book with me. Um, I always co-write the book with someone else. I think that's really important. And um, somebody who is a bank teller said she would volunteer and do the illustrations. And so uh, How Full of Sophia's Backpack uh, got unveiled at my Slego lecture. Um, so that was one step in how to promote OT because the title of the Slego was Promoting OT um, Words, Images, and Actions. And the action part was um, I started OT Global Day of Service. Um, and that was another, yep. another initiative still, still sort of going. So the children's book, back to that, I fell in love with writing 
children's books. And if we look at the time period and how technology has evolved, um, I don't have to go to a publisher. Yeah. Just like recording artists don't go to, you know, um, to yeah, companies. Studios to, and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just like we're doing our own podcasts. Um, I decided to be a self-publisher of children's books. So I did that first one and it hooked me. And now I have 17 co-authored children. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You have to look at my shelf. I have to turn my camera so you can see all the children's books lined up. You really um, did get hooked. I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, and we do we talk about hard topics. Like my mom had dementia. Mm-hmm. So I did a children's book on dementia. And um, almost all the books have occupational therapy uh, built in there. Yep. They, they all have some kind of messaging, you know, being scared to go to your doctor. That was our most recent one. Yep. Um, so it's fun. fun. Everything's that's fun. Amazing. So I guess that student was right 17. when she asked me if I <laughs> interpret work as play. I guess so. Because I think, yeah, like you said, like you've got this millions of different things going on, but they all have a theme. And I think even at the broadest level, that theme is promoting OT. And I think uh, of all the things that you do, you probably do better than most people that I know is promoting OT outside of the profession, which is something that I've, I'm quite passionate about now. Cause I just think, I think a lot of the time OTs are really good at patting ourselves on the back, but not actually explaining what we do to the people that matter. And I think, you know, with the work journal, cause it's multidisciplinary and 17 million kids books, they're all, you know, promoting to, you know, kids and parents that, may not otherwise had any clue what we do like that's I think so that, i was okay that with my slagle lecture yeah i was okay but you know go back it's really funny go back and 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 look at it because it's a perfect example of how technology is just advancing i look at nice and i say it's so dated because we had people um beginning to use twitter and i talked <laughs> about social media and i remember the students um putting together this book for me of all the the tweets and um, now (laughs) before Instagram started, you know, it's, it's, it is so amazing how technology, you know, I read that and I'm like, Oh God, who's going to want to read my Slagle ever because it's so dated about technology. It's, it's a perfect example of how fast uh, technology is moving and how important it is for occupational therapy practitioners and students to be on board and to be using it as a communication tool. Yeah, and I think that sort of stuff, like, I wouldn't read that as dated. I'd read that as this is, you know, this was one of the steps to where we are now. Like, <laughs> this is where this is where that kind of stuff started. Yeah, yeah. But it is funny. It is funny to oh, read yeah. it. <laughs> I, do have, I do have a balance of things that I'd like to do, which is kind of fun because a lot of times people think that I just work all day long. Um, <laughs> don't. And I try, I try to, I'm surprised at how you can't with the number of things that you've got on. Yeah. I don't, first of all, um, I have one bad thing. I don't sleep a lot. So, um, and I don't watch, um, very much TV. That's not a bad thing though. Yeah. And I don't commute. I walk to work. I, um, live on campus. I'm a faculty and resident and Mm -hmm. live in one of the dorms. So there's a lot of things that give me more time in the day. And uh, I think that helps. The other thing I think, you know, that helps has helped me is that I've got a lot of people who uh, like to do things 
Um, so I co-author the children's books. I've got a social media manager who runs OT Global Day of Service. Um, shout out to, to Mara. Um, you know, I'm lucky. There's, you know, I, I know how to delegate or get people on board who want to be part of this. But um, I live in the dorm, as I said. Um, but my balance is I have a fixer-upper home up in New Hampshire, which is north of, um, of Boston, and it's on a, a lake. Mm-hmm. And um, I swim and I kayak. Um, I love going to the theater. I love photography. I love spending time with my children and four grandchildren. Another shout out to my family. Um, I love to travel and I love traveling to, to meet people and learning that culture. Yep. And something I do on a, on a weekly basis is I teach healthy vegetarian cooking. Oh, that's, and, that's um, what I was going to ask because I've yeah. seen, I've seen you post your, I can't remember what it's called. Like a I posted today. Cooking Sergeant school. That's the one. Sergeant and I was wondering about that. So what, why? How, how did, did that, that start? start? Yeah. How did you get into yeah. that? So, yeah. So, um, and who's, who's it for? It. Who, who are you actually teaching? Uh, all, all college students, okay. um, on campus at BU and then, uh, people in the community can come too. So, um, about 15 years ago, I made a life change and decided, um, when my youngest daughter came to BU that I would follow her and move into a dorm. Um, she wasn't that happy about it, but for me, <laughs> For me, it was really great because it was my first experience really living in a dorm. Um, and I became a faculty and resident. And for the first five years, I lived in a freshman dorm. And um, cooking is like a universal communicator. So every Wednesday, I, no, at that time, I think it was Monday, once a week for three hours, I would open my apartment up and students would come in. We would cook, cook, cook. Um, and just fun recipes, family recipes, you know, things that they just wanted to eat, all of that. So the opportunity came to move into um, an upperclassman dorm. And um, I was given that opportunity, moved into this upperclassman dorm. And I decided that for the upperclassmen, I had to not just cook junk food or fun food, um, but to to be uh, more organized in the sense of helping them develop healthy, healthy habits. And it's not within my scope as an occupational therapist to teach nutrition. Mm. Um, so I reached out to the Sergeant Choice Center at my college, and that's the Nutrition Center. And I said, I have this idea. Um, I want to be a Sergeant Choice test kitchen. And um, every Wednesday night, I'll open up my apartment, and you give me recipes that haven't been tested, and we'll do vegetarian because that will give a level playing field. I'm not a vegetarian, yeah, yeah. Um, but a playing field. Anyone so that can eat that. Yeah. Well, Anybody, anybody would want to come. And they thought about it and they said, yeah, let's, let's do it. It sounds, it sounds, um, it sounds like fun. 10 years later, we're <laughs> celebrating our 10th anniversary. One of my students um, in the entry level program, Megan, Megan Bartley um, said, you know, I would be happy to put together a cookbook of your favorite recipes over the last 10 years. So we have um, a cookbook called Karen Jacobs, Sergeant Choice Test Kitchen colon 10th anniversary and that book is now just in process and we'll probably have it out in the next two weeks and it has 20 recipes but what megan did that's so interesting is um we um she made it so that it's at uh, a lower literacy level um there's visuals so you can see all the ingredients you need and to follow the directions um, and she's got some alternative substitutes. Um, and so I'll, I'll have to get one of those to you in the mail. But how did this all start? 
it really started by looking at my target audience. And my target audience are college students, upperclassmen, because I'm living in an upper-class um, building, upperclassmen, I mean juniors and seniors in yep. university. Um, and I have to tell you, tonight is one of them. We're going to be doing this great pizza recipe. Um, I can have eight students show up. I can have 45 students show up. I can have more. And um, it's I publicize it by being in our uh, Boston University newspaper, but it's word of mouth. Yep. And it's been, it's been great because I'm an empty nester. All my kids are married and uh, my grandkids um, are not local um, or close by. And so every evening I open up my home and students come over for three hours. Sometimes I have to say, well, um, we're closing up shop at 11 p.m. Then <laughs> yeah. I have an hour of cleanup. Yeah. Um, but we've become, in some cases, a family of choice. Yeah. You know, become lonely. They, you know, so I teach cooking skills. Um, I yes. teach the organizational skills. And, um, and we always start, and you'd appreciate this, with a cup of tea. We sit around, we talk for about 15, 20 minutes, sometimes a half hour. You know, I've got lots of tea. They make their own tea. And we sit around and talk about the day. And then we get started and we analyze the recipe and start cooking it. And we usually do six times the recipe because that many people will show up. Yep. It's fun. <laughs> I love unreal. it. unreal. That is awesome. And the other thing I was going to ask is of for people that don't know, you also have a podcast. I do. And I know that there's a story behind that. Yeah. So that one, that starts in 1998. That was a really pivotal year for me because um, I had just become AOJ president. And I wanted to um, pay it forward and have occupational therapy practitioners and students see that they could promote occupational therapy. So I heard about in my community that cable companies had to provide free resources for people in their communities to start their own local access cable show. And that's TV. I wanted something to do with my two teenage children. Layla was already um, away in college. And um, so the little boy, the boy that did Loser to me yeah. um, was 14 by then. And um, my daughter, Ariel, was 12. And so I said to them, you know, I want to start this local access cable show. Josh, you like technology. You can use a camera and have fun. And, and Ariel, you know, you want to you you want to do something different. You know, humor me and let's you can be my co-host. Yep. And we'll call it Lifestyle by Design, helping you solve everyday challenges. So they humored me. And we started Lifestyle by Design, a local access cable show. It was on the air for five years. Amazing. And I typically had, you know, um, an occupational therapist on it. I had a nutritionist on it. It was fun. It actually, we think, helped my youngest daughter get into uh, a private high school because she showed videos. So they went off to college. They said, we're not going to do this with you anymore. And so um, I'm a, a Brookline Rotarian. Uh, Rotary is very important to me. And I was at a Rotary meeting and I was sharing the story. And there was a woman there who um, works for the local cable show in Brookline, Mass. And I said, I really want to get Lifestyle by Design back up on on the air. Um, And she said, you know what? I work at this place. I'll do it with you. So we started, Andrea and myself, um, co-hosts of Lifestyle by Design and running it, running it, running it on, you know, cable. And then she came to me and she said about, now it's maybe almost two years ago, a little less than that. Um, She said, Karen, I love podcasts. 
She said, I think we should we should make Lifestyle by Design a podcast. So it'll be easier. We don't have to go to the studio. You know, we can do it on our own. You know, we get some equipment. I'll do the technology. You do get the, you know, you do the interviews and we can both get guests. And I was like, I really don't want to do this. I really want to stay with our cable show. And she said, come on, just trust me. Try it once. Let's see what happens. Yep. I fell in love. <laughs> we never went back to doing the cable show. Yep. So Lifestyle by Design, um, we have all the equipment. You have beautiful equipment there. We found out we didn't need the equipment. Um, um, we do make my office into a studio yep. occasionally and sometimes my apartment. But I do a lot of my interviews on my um, cell phone, on my mobile um, I have a recorder and I record people and it's just a blast. Yeah. It's, it's, I always find it that you're probably the one person I think I've ever heard of. Well, there's so many things that you've said that you're the only person that I've ever heard of doing, but that went from, from TV to podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I think most, well, most people try and go the other way around. <laughs> you, you, you have to know that uh, I wasn't on prime time with my uh, oh, no. cable. It's still, it's still pretty cool. <laughs> It was, it was actually fun. And, you know, if we had some big names on it, um, you know, a lot of people watched it because technology evolved. And when Andrea and I started working together, um, our shows went on YouTube. Yep. So it wasn't local access cable anymore. It was out to the world on YouTube. So people can um, still find I, them on YouTube, I hope. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all there. In fact, we had one that um, someone was telling me they were in a foreign country. And they were talking about this one person, uh, Marvin Minsky, who passed away, who helped start artificial intelligence. He was on um, with his wife uh, as part of, you know, I know the new her, uh, the wife from Rotary. Yep. Um, they were talking about that that local access cable show because Marvin was on it. It was, it was amazing. Um, so I have no rhyme or reason about who gets on Lifestyle by Design. It's yep. really, maybe I'm in... South Africa, and I decided to do something on WFOT. It's not all about occupational therapy like yours. Yeah, yeah. Um, others. Um, I, I'm using that tagline, you know, helping you solve everyday challenges. So we have people sharing their narratives. Um, and so the stories, you know, vary. You know, one of my favorite ones um, is having the co-authors of our children's book, um, You Are So Brave, come on and talk about writing a children's book and illustrating it. Um, and what that evolution was like. So it's just fun. Another fun thing that I like to do. Did I, I think I said when I first sent you the message asking if you wanted to do this podcast, I'm like, you are the person I think has done more things OT related and still still doing those things than anyone else that I think I've ever met. And I, Well, I, you have to remember my age too. I know, so no, I, no, no, but I, I don't know where you find the time. I've been around for, I've been around for a while. Um, I, and I, think, the I think that's, yeah, but I think that that's, um, that's the charm, the joy of being in a profession that um, you can do lots of different things Yeah, and, yeah. and find joy in, in the different things that you do. And I, you know, I always encourage people to, to explore occupational therapy, even in my open hours, you'll appreciate this. Um, I make the students go around and say what their, their um, uh, majors are and where they live, you know, to get this connection and typically I have occupational therapy students that are there. I make them define occupational therapy or talk about it over and over again. And then if someone says they're undecided, I'm like, yes. <laughs> As somebody I can, you know, Mold. talk about yeah. occupational therapy too. And 
maybe go into it. And it does, you know, if you're passionate about occupational therapy and can articulate what it is to any audience, you're the best ambassador, best champion um, to helping our profession um, be viable. Uh, that's that's one of the, the I guess, causes, I guess, for lack of a better term, that I've kind of taken up this year is trying to help OTs actually feel comfortable in talking about OT with other people. Because in my experience and uh, talking to people here and you know, listening to all the different mm-hmm. comments online, OTs don't, we either don't like it or we're not comfortable with it. And I just think that's, that's probably one of our biggest downfalls is we need to be able to talk about what we do. Otherwise, there's no use complaining that no one knows because that's, that's up to us. It is. And, you know, we are, each one of us is, is an ambassador for mm-hmm. occupational therapy. And I think as um, all of us in academia have a responsibility to work with our students so that they feel comfortable. And I actually have an assignment in one of my classes where they have to um, discuss what is occupational therapy with somebody at Thanksgiving or a physical therapy student and, um, or anybody else. Um, they have to write to a legislator in another class or do a letter to the editor uh, in another assignment yep. where they're articulating and writing in words what is occupational therapy and doing it with, as Ellen Cohen would say, with confidence. And that's the key thing. Um, you know, we love our profession. And if we can't define it uh, to any audience, then no one else is going to understand it. So it's my mission, too. So we're in it together. Yes. We just need everyone else on board now and we're good. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. No, you're welcome. Um, I love your podcast too. I, I <laughs> well, listen you. to it. It's wonderful. And I, you know, send my best to everybody who listens to it and to not be frightened to, um, to explore areas that may be out of your comfort zone. I know people talk about thinking outside the box. Just push yourself. Try it. You might like it. In the worst case scenario, if you don't like it, you'd stop doing it, but you got to give it that's a crack it. to find out. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's probably my motto. Can't thank you enough for, for coming on and having a chat. Like I said at the start, like you have done the, the, the types of things and the number of things that you have done throughout your career are just phenomenal. And I've, I've always looked up to you for that because, yeah, it's, oh, it's that's so kind. Been thank very you. Inspiring. Well, you know, um, you're going to be on my, on my podcast, so we'll have to set up a time for that. Deal. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. You're a really great interviewer. So thank you. Thank you you very much. That means a lot. um, I promise that I'll interview you in a a nicer hour. (laughs) 